0: SCP 7432. K is for Keystone. I've said before how awful it would be to be a field agent for the Foundation, tossed headfirst into an unknown situation, oftentimes cut off from any support whatsoever, and forced to become a combination soldier and detective, fighting for their lives. It's easy for field agents in these scenarios to lose hope as they lose comrades one by one, and despair settles in. SCP-7432 is another lengthy article depicting a team sent into an impossible scenario, cut off from all support, as they continue to try and figure out their situation while desperately staying alive. I'll make a note here that 7432 is an article that's much more akin to a tale than an SCP, so for those with an aversion to such things, Consider this a heads up. SCP-7432 is a small, trapezoidal keystone, approximately 15cm in height, 11-16cm to 16 centimeters in width and depth, and weighing 7kg. It appears to be comprised entirely of granite, but due to its secondary anomalous function, samples can't be safely obtained to confirm this. The front face of it is engraved with a triskelion. A neolithic symbol consisting of three interconnected spirals, surrounded by a ring of glyphs of unknown origin. The primary anomalous property of the keystone manifests when it is held against or used as the keystone of an arched doorway with a functional door. If a subject touches the keystone while imagining a desired location, the open door will lead directly to the location. The only known limitation to potential destinations is that they must possess at least the same three spatial dimensions as baseline reality. It can otherwise be used to access any cognizable location, including alternate time periods and timelines, altered states of reality, and locations with subjective correlation to concepts, such as somewhere I can be happy. Sounds pretty useful, but there's a secondary anomalous property which is the keystone's central role in a temporal loop, present only in timeline 7432, and thus serving as that timeline's distinguishing feature. In that timeline, on February 26, 1606, the keystone manifests in a delivery of stone in the Cromwell Street construction yard, resulting in its misuse as the keystone for 17 Cromwell Street, London's front entrance. The error is not corrected. On September 9th, 1999, resident Adam Lowe returns to 17 Cromwell Street intoxicated, and accidentally triggers the item, transporting himself to his hometown of Bingara, Australia. The keystone is subsequently discovered by the foundation, relocated to Site-115 for containment and replaced with a non-anomalous replica. On February 26th, 2188, SCP-23049 undergoes its ninth oblique event while stored at Site-115, coincidentally displacing the Keystone to the year 1606 under the exact circumstances of its manifestation. As a result of this, the keystone is never physically created, possesses no discernible origin, and undergoes no permanent alterations across the entirety of its functionally infinite existence. The chronology department suggests that this lattermost aspect may be due to an unrecognized regenerative property, but testing cannot be conducted to confirm this due to the potential creation of a temporal paradox. To sum all that up in simpler terms, then, the keystone suddenly appeared in the year 1606, where it's used as part of an archway. In 1999, a guy accidentally uses it, at which point the foundation brings it into containment until the year 2188, where another SCP causes it to be sent back to 1606. At no point in this time loop was the keystone ever actually made, and the foundation can't really mess with it without creating some sort of paradox, which generally aren't good things. All is well and good then, except that now an unknown influence is causing the keystone to suddenly demanifest from the timeline on March 21st, 2009, preventing the temporal loop from being resolved. While this would normally create a big paradox, it seems that this new event is creating a new loop, as the events from 1606 through 2009 continue unaltered. Unfortunately, now it's especially paradoxical, as there's not even a reason that the keystone should appear in the 1600s. Following the manifestation of the keystone, the timeline is spontaneously replaced by an unidentified metastable branch timeline. The temporal tracker for the keystone is transmitting from within this new timeline, suggesting that the keystone is re-manifesting in a potentially recoverable state. A task force, Aura-4, is being dispatched to recover the keystone if possible and document this new timeline. That brings us to the meat of the document, following the four-man team, or rather the three-man team. The sky above them when they arrived was dark and empty, and the ground was featureless and flat. The air was stagnant, neither hot, nor cold, nor comfortable filled with a miasma that bypassed the team's respirators. The northern horizon, or what they decided was the northern horizon, was awash with light, but none of it opposed the permeating gloom around. Of the four members of aura 4, only three made it, agents Kelly, Pike, and Hanrahan, with their leader, agent Blake, gone. They searched the surrounding darkness for any indication as to why, but found no evidence, and so Kelly and Pike nodded to Hanrahan, acknowledging his promotion to acting leader. They set about their predefined duties, with Pike analyzing the foul air for contaminants, Kelly inspecting the contents of his backpack and removing the components of a drone, and Hanrahan surveying the desolate region and recording it. It was a vast, featureless plain, several hundred kilometers in size, rhomboid in shape, with a single cottage several kilometers north of the group being the only interruption in its faultless surface. Hanrahan, like the others, avoided looking directly at it, as they all felt more at ease directing their attention anywhere else. Hanrahan focused on the illuminated horizon, using the zoom on his camera to make out four vaguely discernible towers, around which the lights seemed brighter. The cottage, its comically tall chimney, and the dim firelight that escaped from its door and windows were both relegated to the edges of the screen. A pair of imposing walls, easily several hundred meters in height, dominated the southern edges of the rhombus, opposite the city lights, coming together at the southernmost corner where they merged into the base of a monolithic tower its four corners corkscrewing counterclockwise upwards, disappearing into the shadow-infested sky above. Hanrahan mentally, and correctly, declared it to be the tallest thing he's ever seen. Halfway along each wall's length, directly east and west of the agents, was a huge archway, through which a small portion of the areas beyond was visible. A better representative of the regions, and the stark contrast between them, however, were the two lone structures from each that towered over the walls. The first, in the southwest, was aptly summarized as a ludicrously tall apartment building. The walls were a uniform, faded yellow, each featuring repetitions of the same basic window, illuminated from within by a harsh white light arranged into perfect columns and rows, spanning the entire width and height of the structure. No other description is necessary, as there were no balconies, no external air conditioning units, no fire escapes, no curtains, and no part of the building was any different to every other part. An unnerving air of emptiness hung over it, as if it had been built to house thousands, but never used for the purpose. The second structure, in the southeast, was a statue of epic proportions, equal in height to the apartment tower, and depicted a kingly warrior knight covered entirely in red, white, and black plate armor. The barrel helm was studded with gold protrusions, equally reminiscent of a crown and a castle's merlins. Their left hand rested on a golden claymore in front of them while two swords, one black and one white, sat in scabbards on one side, while the other had a single red sword. The most striking aspect of it, however, was that it was literally, physically painful to look at for no discernible reason. The recorded footage doesn't evoke the same feeling, but it did seem to warp the beauty of the monument into a misshapen, hideous form, even if nothing had changed. Pike then announces that the air is clear and removes her mask, but Hanrahan recoils at the smell as he removes his mask, and Kelly promptly puts his back on. Pike says that it's bad air, but nothing the respirators are changing. There's too much co2, like someone's been in here for way, way too long, and it'll be harmful in a few hours, but not immediately. Callie takes his mask back off, wincing at the smell, and asks where Blake is, and if he was overwritten. Hanrahan replies that they're here, so he should be too, or his watch malfunctioned. He crouches down to run a finger along the ground, noting the brownish-gray color, coarse texture like concrete, and it being air temperature with no residue. He tells Pike to get a sample if she can and for kelly to assemble the drone so that they can get a look at this place before moving. Hanrahan unclips his radio and tries to hail Blake, but no response comes, so he turns his attention to tracking the keystone. Kelly proceeds to launch the drone, using a computer tablet to control it, while Pike struggles to collect a sample from the ground, managing only a small sliver. Kelly calls Hanrahan over to look at the drone footage showing that the rhomboid plane is one of three equally-sized and shaped areas, arranged into a hexagon. The spiraling tower is at the center, where the two monolithic walls and an unseen third meet together, dividing the three areas. The apartment tower and statue are at the heart of their areas, the former surrounded by suburban sprawl, the latter encircled by green hedges with splotches of brown, The cottage sits in the core of the lightless plane, which the agents try to forget, only adding to the weight of its presence. Kelly then turns the camera to show what lay beyond the outer edges of the hexagon. More hexagons, all identical. The scenery tessellated in every direction, endlessly, and all three rhombuses meet with their duplicates at their furthest tips, forming infinite rows of the same repeated scenes. A suburban sprawl, a brown splotched overgrowth, and a vast dark plain, with only a single circle of light halfway between the cottage and the tower. Hanrahan points to the light and tells Kelly to keep the camera on it as he proceeds to turn off the group's lantern. The sole light in every dark rhombus proceeds to vanish, simultaneously, and returns as he flips the lantern back on. Hanrahan narrates into his camera stating that the region is a hexagon with opposite sides connecting to each other, giving the appearance of infinite repetition. There's no visible curvature, and three walls divide the area into three rhombuses, with parallel faces of each rhombus connecting to opposite sides of a bordering division. Pike looks to the illuminated northern horizon, and Kelly explains that that's the opposite side of the areas beyond these walls. He remarks that he hates these ones, as you can't trust a circle to lead back to where you were. Hanrahan looks to his tracking device and says that that explains these readings, as there's seven signals, all exact matches for the tracker, all different directions and distances, so they're all just the same signal. The team proceeds to check their gear, but Hanrahan notes that the compass doesn't work, but that's not surprising to Kelly, who says that they should set their bearings. Hanrahan looks to the cottage, marking that as north, then the tower as south, and one archway as east, the other west. The nearest signal is coming from the southwest, and since they all agree that they have no reason to go north, and all seem to want to avoid the cottage, they proceed towards the apartment tower. As they move, they walk in silence, occupying themselves with their own thoughts. Hanrahan analyzes the situation, already concocting his post-action report. Kelly decides what alcohol he's looking forward to, and Pike realizes that her watch is broken. Her watch, and the others, stated the time and date to be March 12th, 2009, 11 23, 49 a.m., the exact moment that the keystone disappeared, but four minutes earlier than the agents should have arrived. Now the watches were motionless, but Pike realizes that the watches aren't broken, as all other functions work normally, but the time is frozen. They guess that maybe it's due to time dilation, and a second hasn't actually passed yet for them, but Pike suggests to check their tachyon readings, Instead of showing legible, coherent information, however, each watch shows large chunks of the display randomly flickering about, like a graphical glitch. Pike's not sure what they're looking at, as there's something here, and the watches are picking it up as tachyons, but if they are, they're not behaving like how they're supposed to, or they're not tachyons, or it's some sort of interference. Kelly suggests that just the detectors in the watches are broken, and that's why the time is frozen. Pike says that either way, she doesn't think trying to jump out would be a good idea, as they could end up anywhere, or outside of time entirely, meaning that they're stuck here until they find the keystone and use it to get out. Unless, of course, that's broken too. The rest of the journey to the archway was done in silence. Eventually, they reached the archway, finding a curving four-lane road, complete with concrete sidewalks, abruptly beginning halfway through the archway, replacing the featureless vermilion-brown stone, and stretching forward. A pair of two-lane roads branched off from it every hundred meters, each corner of which featured a signpost with a green sign pointing in every available direction, but the signs are blank. The streets are flanked on both sides by the same 1950s-era suburban house, repeated over and over again with no difference but in orientation. Two floors, the lower dominated by a single car garage, a pair of square shutterless windows above, looking down on the perfectly mowed front lawn. A white picket fence separates the properties, a gate beside the garage leading along the house to the backyard, which has a single tree. The roofs are all the same dull white, the walls the same faded yellow as the apartment block that towers over the scene, the only different building in the area. It is visible from everywhere, and everything is visible from it. Every house is pristine, as if freshly constructed, lacking any indication of customization or habitation. There are no cars, no bins, no mailboxes, no curtains, no toys, no damage nothing. Every window is dark, every door is closed, and the only sound in the air is the faint hum of incandescent streetlights, all illuminating the scene like a quiet street at night, and the sounds that the agents themselves make. They emerge from the archway, moving off the road onto a sidewalk. The dividing walls are painted sky blue on this side, with copies of a fluffy white cloud added at regular intervals, like a faux sky one would expect in a newborn child's bedroom. Kelly asks the others if he needs to say anything about this, to which Pike says that he doesn't. Hanrahan focuses on the tracking device, orienting himself towards the apartment building, and telling them that it's in there. They're going to wait a few minutes for the drone to do a flyover so they can navigate to the apartment building, and in the meantime, they'll take more samples and footage. The concrete here is easier to break than the durable vermilion brown stone, but it turns out to be nothing more than mundane, modern concrete. The asphalt is the same, along with the grass, the picket fence, and the paint. When she reaches the wall of a house, however, Hanrahan stops her, and says that they'll sweep through the house first. The three gather on the front door with their weapons ready, and Kelly goes for the doorknob only to find that it's completely immobile. He suggests that they'll have to kick it down, but Pike suggests checking for a back door, so they proceed to the side gate. The latch to this is also stuck though, so they climb over instead. But before they continue on, Hanrahan checks the latch, finding it to be a solid piece of metal shaped like the latch, along with the hinges, meaning that it's just a fence that looks like a gate. Pike calls them from the backyard, which is simple and bland outside of the single tree in the center, all of the branches of which remain inside the boundaries of the backyard. The back of the house looks identical to the front, except that the garage door is replaced with a single large window, which Pike shines her flashlight into, finding the house to be hollow. Light shines straight through the entire length of the building uninterrupted, with no interior walls, no floors, not even support columns or beams. It's nothing more than a single room, decorated to appear habitable from the outside. The windows are the only openings in the timber frame, so the front door wasn't seized It wasn't a door at all. Pike says that at least they know that there's no one inside now, and asks if they think the rest of the houses are the same. Kelly replies that he hopes not, as he'd prefer a normal house, not a bunch of this. Hanrahan tells Kelly to give Pike a foot up so she can see over the fence and look in the windows next door. The others are identical, so the agents return to the street, climbing over the faux gate again. With their empty truth revealed, the surrounding duplicates seem saturated with a sinister sensation, their superficial normalcy now unsettling, uncanny, and unwelcoming. The drone finally does its flyover, showing the suburbia to be dominated by the single, spiraling main road, and from the northern archway the agents had come from, it proceeds west, curves inward, anti-clockwise, until it reaches the apartment tower at the center. There, it briefly splits apart around the structure and continues onward, spiraling out clockwise, never intersecting itself, before exiting out the east arch into the statues area. Smaller roads branch off its entire length and each other, forming a dense, maze-like network that ensures every house is accessible. They decide to cut through on a more direct path towards the apartment tower than just following the main road, and Hanrahan tells them to keep track of their route, in case they need to leave quickly, he doesn't want to make a wrong turn. They follow the sidewalk onward, with Kelly dividing his attention between following the others and controlling the drone, issuing directions as necessary, and Pike and Hanrahan keeping alert, ready to arm themselves at a moment's notice. Their route is repetitious, just like the scenery, and the sound of their footsteps echoes from all around, colliding and intertwining into a dull rumble reminiscent of a distant, approaching army, easily drowning out the faint, muted hum of the streetlights. Infrequently, the echoes reach a harmony that magnifies their volume, imitating a genuine nearby footfall, but every time the agents stop to nervously search the area, they find nothing, simply listening as their cacophonous, beacon-like echoes fade away. A wave of disorientation washes over the agents as they reach the second arm of the main road, finding it identical to the last, and only the drone's overhead view proves that they have made any progress. Even the monolithic boundary walls seem no further away than before. Kelly tells them to take a left, but Pike hesitates, and asks if he's sure. The two begin bickering, with Pike asking him if he hasn't noticed that they've been going counterclockwise, and doesn't find it coincidental that they've been following the path of the giant spiral that this place is built around. She thinks that they should stick to the pattern, and keep going right, but Kelly argues that if they go that way, the nearest cut through is fifteen blocks away, and it's twice as long as left. Hanrahan, growing frustrated at their bickering, agrees with Kelly, and the three begin moving again. After a few steps, however, Pike stops and says that she thought she heard something. The others don't, however, and her and Kelly begin arguing again as Hanrahan sighs and mumbles to himself. Pike brings up a time that Kelly lost a watch in 17th century London after it got pickpocketed and they had to chase the thief across the second millennium and spend eight months cleaning it up. Hanrahan eventually screams at the two to shut up as they bicker during every mission and he's sick of hearing it. Movement then catches his eye and he notices that the furthest streetlight down the road is out and as the other two turn to look, they see the next one extinguish. Kelly begins running for the nearest side street, quickly followed by the other two, as more of the streetlights go dark. They begin weaving around houses, trying for as straight a path as possible, and Pike looks back as the darkness is only three houses behind them. It quickly catches up to them, with Kelly wheezing as he pushes himself around the next corner. Hanrahan close behind him, deafened by the sound of his own heartbeat, and Pike letting out a scream of terror and exertion as she lunges for the corner. All of the lights everywhere go out at once, and the three are plunged into perfect darkness. The sound of stumbling is heard, then of something hitting the ground. A dull, metal thud mixed with a brittle crack, a shout of pain, and then silence. Shortly after, the lights all come back on, with Pike lying on the road in a fetal position, and Hanrahan laying at the base of a streetlight, both hands clutching at his forehead. Kelly helps Hanrahan up, who says that he's going to need a doctor, as Pike yells that she told them that she heard something. Hanrahan asks where the darkness is now, but Kelly checks the drone's view, finding the entire area to be illuminated. Pike, bandaging Hanrahan's head, says that they need to go clockwise, as she's not sure what it is or why it left them alone, but she knows that it only attacked because Kelly made them turn left. Kelly however says that it was just a coincidence, so they turn to Hanrahan, who says that they're in trouble. None of them remember turning around, but now the tower is suddenly behind them, and after looking around, Kelly notes that this is a completely different area. The walls and their faux painted sky are now barely visible on the other side of the tower in the distance, meaning that they had been transported to the opposite side of the rhombus, near where it looped over. Pike says that all they have to do is go back the way they came, but they realize that in their frenzy, they had resorted to basic instinct and simple patterns, taking the earliest turns to get away as fast as possible. But the side streets aren't a grid, and the main road's intersection all have four routes, but those of the side streets varied. In blindly charging towards the first left, how many rights had they passed, all indistinguishable from one they had come from? How many corners had forced them to make the same turn twice in a row, or how many times had they done it willingly, deeming the nearest alternative too far away? How many times had a new road continued in both directions, and how far? How could they tell if earlier memories were getting mixed with recent adrenaline-fogged ones? The unwavering uniformity of the place, taken as a crippling weakness in its attempt to appear normal, was instead its greatest strength. A false sense of reliability, drawing them deeper into the terrifying labyrinth of mirrors hidden right before their eyes. Pike asks Hanrahan what they do, to which he tells Kelly to see if he can find them using the drone, as they should be somewhere in the southwest, and watch for any dark areas. Pike however stomps over and says that she'll do it, because if he can't spot lights going out, he can't be trusted to fly the drone. Kelly rolls his eyes, but hands over the drone's tablet, and suggests that if they turn off one of the streetlights, they could quickly find themselves. Hanrahan shoots it down though, as that would give their position away to anything on the tower. Pike says that they should just get moving, back to the main road instead, by moving towards the tower and go anti-clockwise only. If they hit a dead end, then they just turn around and keep going anti-clockwise, or climb the fences to cut through. Hanrahan agrees, and the three begin moving again, with 20 minutes passing without note. Nothing changes that they notice, with the same uniform houses, closed gates, closed doors, empty windows, incandescent buzzing streetlights, the acrid smell of stale air, echoing footfalls mingled with Pike's intermittent growls. Finding the wandering group was harder than she anticipated, as the suburbs looked completely empty, devoid of any movement. Hanrahan suddenly stops them, pointing to one of the nearby houses, where the gate is open. All three ready their rifles, and Pike searches the surroundings but finds nothing. They give the house a wide berth as they continue, keeping their eyes on it until it's out of sight. Around the next corner, they find the main road, with Pike grinning triumphantly and Kelly saying nothing. They check up and down the main road for any extinguished lights, but find none, so they proceed counterclockwise, and Pike finds them with the drone after less than a minute. She exclaims that they're further away from the tower than when they started, but Hanrahan shushes her and looks over the tablet. He points out where the open gate was, and asks if she can rewind the footage, but she can't without giving up the live feed. He points out that The street that gate was on is a dead end, but asks the two of them when the last time they saw a dead end in person here was. Pike doesn't exactly recall, and asks if they have seen any, to which Kelly and Hanrahan agree that they haven't seen a single dead end, despite there being hundreds visible from the drone footage. They use the drone footage to find the nearest dead end, but when they get there, they find that the street the drone is looking at doesn't actually exist. Hanrahan notes that there are no dead ends, and they just overlap, like the edges of this place. If they review the drone's footage, he expects that they'll see themselves running straight into a dead end, then disappearing and reappearing in another. That's how they got moved, as clockwise the spiral takes you out, but counterclockwise you go in. They were running clockwise, so they must have run through a street like this and been sent all the way out. If they go counterclockwise through these, maybe the reverse works and it'll take them straight to the tower. Kelly agrees and immediately sets off down the impossible street, surprising the other two, who ask why he agrees. He explains that the thing living here would have these roads memorized, and if the drone can't see these shortcuts, what else can't it see? The other two get the implication, and all three set off in a jog. Pike watches on the tablet as the three of them disappear as they approach a non-existent house. When she looks up, the tower has lurched closer in an obvious change, and the dividing walls have moved to the left. They soon find the main road again, and Pike says that they managed to skip two-thirds of the distance, and the next shortcut could take them straight there. Hanrahan starts walking and Pike shoots Kelly a smug grin at Kelly as she passes him until she hears a click sound. She spins to look down the street, finding that the furthest streetlight is out. The three bolt for the shortcut, but the darkness is faster this time and quickly gains on them. They manage to make it off the main road onto a side street and see that the lights on the main road behind them are out, but the darkness has stopped progressing. The group heads through the shortcut, causing the tower to lurch closer, now looming over the group, and they stop to catch their breath. Hanrahan tells them that they're almost done, and once they have the keystone and find a working door, they're out, and this place ceases to exist. Let the researchers argue over the footage and decide if the darkness is an embodiment of the human mind, or thematic fear, or maybe it was just meant to spook them. He doesn't know, and doesn't care, as once they're out of here, it's someone else's problem. They continue on back to the main road, where it soon expands to four times its usual width, pushing the bordering houses outward as if space itself is being warped. The base of the apartment tower sits in the center of the bulge, oriented towards the distant spiraling tower. There is no island of grass or fence around it, as the asphalt goes all the way to its walls, and it's simply there, dominating the scenery, a monolithic nail driven into the heart of the place, bending the world around it to its whims. The walls of the lowest two floors are featureless, lacking the uniform, repeated windows present higher up. The agents approach, with Hanrahan checking the keystone signal and Pike collecting a sample. She notes that it isn't paint on the walls, but rather the concrete is yellow, and she thinks that it might all be one solid block of stone. Even at a closer angle, the windows reveal no new details, nothing but the same harsh light could be seen through them. Hanrahan tells them that the keystone should be at the top, but he doesn't see any way to get up with no ledges to climb or places to safely attach climbing anchors. Pike suggests that they try actually looking for an entrance, so they head around the tower counterclockwise, finding a single opaque revolving door, too small to fit more than one at a time. The other side wasn't visible without stepping in, so there was no option other than going in blind. Hanrahan says to go through counterclockwise, and heads through, followed by Pike and then Kelly. Pushing through, Pike steps out onto a flat, faded yellow rooftop, the peak of the tower. From this side, the revolving door is in a freestanding cylinder, and a knee-height ledge encircles the rooftop, with small rectangular lights illuminating it. Hanrahan is standing just off to her right, aiming his rifle at the opposite end. Pike raises her own and looks, finding Kelly on the other side of the rooftop, holding a small, misshapen block of granite. He says that he couldn't reach them on the radio, so he just came here to wait, and Hanrahan yells at him not to move as another Kelly steps out of the revolving door. The two Kellys lock eyes, and Pike turns to aim her rifle at the closer one. The one in the distance says that that's not him. While the closer one says that he's Kelly, and that's a fake. Hanrahan asks Pike her thoughts, and she says that she's not sure, before saying, The Emerald Blade sings in the twilight. The Kelly in the distance provides the response, cleaving the shield of its foe, and after a few moments of silence, the closer Kelly drops his facade of astonishment and grins. Then it begins charging at the other Kelly, causing Pike and Hanrahan to fire at it. Kelly drops his stone, briefly fumbles with his rifle, and then fires at the fake Kelly. Several bullets from his rifle whiz dangerously close to Pike and Hanrahan. The doppelganger crosses the roof in mere seconds, and Kelly tries to step aside at the last minute to let it tumble over the edge, but it grabs him along the way and they both fall out of view. Kelly's screams diminish as he falls, and Hanrahan and Pike race to look over the edge, seeing nothing but empty streets far below them. Hanrahan shouts into his radio for Kelly, initially getting no response, until an unknown voice tells them that they have what they came for. It tells them to leave now, and then go silent. Hanrahan stares over the edge, before turning away and telling Pike that they need to move before they end up like Kelly. He then picks up the stone and swears, remarking that the keystone is broken. Four of the faces of the stone were roughly smooth, chiseled flat then worn away by age, but the jagged edges and faces were new, proving it a broken part of a larger hole. The greater identifier was the incomplete engravings on one face, a single spiral and several strange runes, one third of the complete triskelion, and the ring of glyphs surrounding it. It was the lower left third of the keystone, but nothing more. Pike begins scouring over the surface of the stone and panicking, as Hanrahan says that they could still try their watches. Pike argues that they could go anywhere or outside of time, but Hanrahan replies that that's better than suffocating here, or being killed by that thing, or something worse. Pike tells him to just let her think, and the two stare at the keystone fragment, before Hanrahan notes that that's the wrong part, as the tracker is in the top of the keystone, not the side. Perhaps the top of the stone is nearby, in one of the houses maybe and if there's two pieces here, the third shouldn't be too far. He stands up, looking at the tracker, before frowning and pointing east. He tells her that it's at this exact height, so it has to be on top of that statue, and they need to move now before it moves again. The glimmer of hope is enough to spur them into action, and they return to the tower's base, charging straight for the dead end they had come from. Since counterclockwise had brought them in, clockwise should take them out. The journey was swift and simple, and when they looked back, the tower is in the distance again, with the dividing walls behind it. They soon come to the open gate again, and before long make it to the other arch, the asphalt road replaced by ankle-height grass identical to that used as lawn by the houses. It spreads out in front of them bordered beyond the tunnel by a pair of dense hedge walls, four meters in height, forming a path equal in width to the main road, and like its artificial twin, curves off to the right before going back left, disappearing from view. The hedge walls are decorated with a plethora of blooming flowers, all of different sizes, shapes, and colors, though there was an evident bias towards vibrant, almost fluorescent hues. The grass floor, on the other hand, is only interrupted by a few lightly dispersed pieces of vermilion-brown stone. Above the scene stood the towering statue, still physically painful to look upon directly, and its legs are covered in a network of green tendrils, but they thin out and go no further than the knees. Hanrahan slows to a stop, catching his breath, while Pike collapses to her knees. They share no words, as Hanrahan goes over and joins Pike in her muted, shell-shocked mourning. Neither had liked Kelly's presence over the past years, nor considered him anything resembling a friend, but he wasn't a bad person. He was an annoyance, a nuisance, a reoccurring pest, but not someone deserving of the fate he received. They knew that there was nothing they could have done, though as there was no reason to suspect a shapeshifter, and when it attacked they had tried to protect Kelly. The weight of guilt and hindsight regret fell on them anyways. They should have known it wasn't him and figured out how to mislead it. They should have believed Kelly the moment they saw him and killed it somehow before it killed him. They take time to rest, eat, recuperate, and wallow in despondency. They're not sure for how long, but in their minds, not long enough to do Kelly justice. Eventually, though, they turn their attention to the area ahead, and to the newly arrived drone's aerial view. Seen from above, the area sports the same identical spiral, coiling inward counterclockwise from the west arch, reversing at the base of the statue, coiling outward to exit through the other gateway. Whereas the suburbia had a chaotic maze of streets, however, the garden instead has a simple array of straight and narrow alleys, radiating out from the center like lines of longitude from the South Pole, except the corridors are non-continuous, spanning only between one arm of the spiral and the next. Their termini offset halfway between each other, such that they all begin and end with T-junctions. Hanrahan notes that there are multiple discolored sections throughout, reddish-brown, but they could be structures or dying plants. Pike nods absentmindedly, and Hanrahan continues, saying that it's the same spiral, so maybe the same rules, and they'll go counterclockwise. Pike's eyes suddenly widen, and she asks about the thing. Hanrahan grimaces and says that if the lights go out, they'll do an identity check. If either of them fail, they should run north, to the northern arch. He then pulls out the tracking device, confirming that the keystone fragment is still at the top of the statue. With a nod of confirmation, they set off. The stagnant air beyond the arch was freshened by a thick mixture of sweet and sour odors, and the flowers, though wildly different enough to be several thousand different species, all bloom from the same singular plant making up the hedge walls, neither a shrub nor a thorny vine, but a strange mixture of both. Hanrahan narrates all this, but Pike takes no samples, as neither wanted to waste time anymore and feared that damage to the perfectly shaped flora might invoke retaliation from whatever inhabited the place, if anything. The two idly scan over the surroundings as they go, equal parts cautious, bored, and curious. But like the suburbia, the garden sticks to its theme monotonously. Short green grass underfoot, occasional vermilion brown rubble, tall hedge walls on both sides curving smoothly, a steady spattering of flowers across their surfaces, and every twenty meters a pair of lit, enclosed lanterns hanging from protruding branches near the hedge's peaks. They reach the first intersection and turn left, into an almost claustrophobically narrow corridor, barely wide enough for the two of them to walk shoulder to shoulder. Pike keeps her attention on the drone's footage, watching in case they were moved elsewhere in the garden, while Hanrahan tries to watch for threats, finding it increasingly difficult to. The monolithic night statue fills the visible sky, making it painful to watch the hedge-tops, and even otherwise a headache was growing behind his eyes. Suddenly, a half-buried stone catches his foot, and he stumbles as Pike bumps into him, causing him to fall face-first into a hedge. The impact sends out a short-lived shockwave throughout the wall, dislodging a cloud of pollen that fills the air with a light yellow haze, their mouths with the taste of flowers, and strengthened the abounding sweet odor. Pike apologizes as she pulls Hanrahan to his feet, but then the two have a mild sneezing fit from the pollen. He proceeds to pat himself down, finding his radio missing, and discovering it sticking out from the hedge. Which was pristine and undamaged as if he hadn't fallen and crushed it at all. He grabs the antenna of the radio and pulls, bulging the hedge slightly, but the radio remains inside of the hedge. He wipes the mucus off of his hands and gives it a good pull with the same result and is about to start hacking the plants away with his machete when Pike grabs his shoulder. Both of them still sneezing, She says that it's dangerous and could annoy something. Hanrahan nods in agreement, because if there was a gardener, they wouldn't like their garden being torn up. They were lucky the accidental fall had somehow caused no damage. He gives the radio one last tug, and then continues along, still sneezing. They eventually reach the main road as the sneezing fits die down, and Hanrahan tells Pike to confirm what she saw. She replies that he fell, landed in the hedge, and when he got up, it grew back into place instantly. Hanrahan nods, scratching at his arm, and says that it might grow over them if they fall in again. Pike nods as she watches him scratch at his neck, and asks if he's alright. He replies that it's just poison ivy, and he'll be fine, but she says that it isn't ivy, and they don't know what it is. She gets out her first aid kit and asks how his head is, to which he says that he has a headache from looking at the statue. Pike gives him a bottle of calamine lotion and a concerned irritated glance, telling him to put it where it itches, and that she's taking lead, because he ran into a pole and gave himself a concussion. He replies that he doesn't remember that, but she remarks that amnesia is a symptom, and asks if he has any nausea, ringing ears, or blurred vision. He says no to all of them, and asks if she's sure that he had a pole. She tells him that that's why he has a bandage on his head, and after feeling it, he agrees with her leading. As a reminder, this occurred when the darkness first hit them in suburbia. He asks her how bad it is, and she tells them that he's going straight to a hospital after this, and to try not to think until then. Once Pike packs away the kit, they set off again with her in the lead. She keeps the computer tablet in one hand, occasionally checking the feed for any changes, as Hanrahan wasn't fit to handle the duty. Her eyes scour the surroundings, watching and waiting, interrupted only by the occasional extended blink, prompted by an emerging dull ache behind her eyes, which she dismisses as the product of the growing pressure on her, Though the junctions are closer, being nearer to the heart of the garden, the agent's walk is longer, as the archway wasn't equally between two inward-leading intersections. The scenery remains the same until they pass the fourth lantern, when something vermilion brown comes into view ahead, dominating the hedge wall. Pike stops, turning her head slightly to listen, before looking back the way they had come and then back to the path ahead. A few moments of silence pass, and she says that it's here. Hanrahan spins to see the road behind them, seeing it to be uniform and unchanged, evenly lit, and turns back at the sound of Pike sprinting away, going clockwise. Hanrahan follows, and as they run towards the evidently artificial structure ahead, Pike's heart sinks as she realizes how horribly exposed they are. In the suburbs, they could take refuge behind fences or in the backyards, but the garden lacked any form of cover whatsoever. The drone's feed, which showed the region to be fully lit, indicated that the same was true everywhere, so the only options for escape were to reach the center in the hope of finding shelter, or going for one of the archways in the hope the pursuer wouldn't follow through them. Pike shouts to Hanrahan about a door in a half-ruined section of a vermilion-brown castle ahead, with the hope of escape giving her a surge of energy. Hanrahan, however, steadily dwindles in pace, constantly looking back but finding nothing but the same illuminated road behind. Pike stops short of bashing straight through the door, first grabbing the ring handle to figure out which way it opened, with the answer being neither. She yanks the handle with increasing force, then resorts to pushing the door with her shoulder. Finally, she steps back to kick at it. Hanrahan yells at her to stop, as it's not a door, just like the suburbia. Pike pauses and starts looking around, still in a panic, as Hanrahan grabs her shoulders and tells her to calm down. He says that the road is still lit, so they're fine and nothing's chasing them. Pike starts to calm down, realizing that he's right, but says that she knows she heard it. Hanrahan tells her to look at the footage, where she finds that the drone shows the whole area to be uniform and orderly, as always. Hanrahan believes that she heard something, but they aren't being chased, at least in the same way, so it must mean something else here. Pike then steps back, and says the code phrase which Hanrahan responds correctly to, before giving her the code phrase, which she also correctly responds to. Pike tells him that the rules haven't changed, as this area has the same spiral and the same pattern. Hanrahan argues that it is different, but Pike wonders why, because for a random place that shouldn't exist, there seems to be an awful lot of order and intent here. Hanrahan shrugs and says that as long as they get out of here as soon as possible, they don't need to know. He then steps back from the ruins and narrates that it's a ruined structure, medieval design, possibly the remains of a fort or castle, built from blocks of vermilion brown stone. He notes that the material is present in all three areas, but there's been no evidence of a quarry anywhere. Pike suggests that it could be buried under the grass, or taken from the foundation of that statue. Hanrahan says that it's a good thought, and mentions that the structure has a single door, possibly aesthetic, and the hedges here are flush with the wall of the ruins, or vice versa. Same with the floor and grass, only the parts of the structure protruding into the path have been removed, as well as everything above the top of the hedge with the remainder appearing untouched. Pike then suddenly jumps, letting out a shout of surprise and shock, exclaiming that something just crawled over her foot, but she didn't see it. The two search the grass, but find nothing unusual, so they silently agree to get going again. Onward they go, following the uniform, ankle-height grass counterclockwise. Scanning the monotonous flower studded walls, glancing over lanterns, each mundane and yet slightly off. Pike groans, rubbing her eyes to stifle the growing pain behind them. She doesn't look up anymore, as the sight of the knightly statue facing toward the fourth central tower only exacerbated the pain. But even without it, the headache grew. She had tripped and hit the road hard. So maybe she was concussed as well. The further they traveled, the more the odd sensation of a pervading, elusive wrongness gnaws at her. Not the wrongness of the suburbia, the discomfort of perfect endless repetition, but an intrinsic one, fundamental, all around and plain to see, yet hidden beneath a filmy surface. Pike only feels it in person, not through the drone's footage, but nonetheless it seems wrong somehow. They reach the next turn and she comes to a realization, asking Hanrahan for the compass and a magnet. Hanrahan pauses and mentions her radio, which she could turn into an electromagnet. It's already useless as his is in the hedge and Kelly isn't going to answer. She asks about Blake, and although Hanrahan says that they haven't heard anything from him and he may not even be here, she believes that they'll need it in case he calls them. They can gut something that they don't need, though, and she pulls out the air purity test, taking one more test with it and finding the air to be the same as before. She opens the device and plucks out a battery and a copper wire, stripping it and wrapping it around a screw counterclockwise, out of caution and then using duct tape to attach both ends of the wire to the battery's terminals. The compass needle then turns, aligned with the new electromagnetic field. She slowly turns in a circle, watching as the red needle tip turns, passing the numbers on the compass's circumference, her angle relative to the false north. She completes a 360-degree turn, but there was still more circle on the compass to go, noting that there's a total of 400 degrees in this circle. Hanrahan calls it a semiohazard, but she replies that this is everywhere, so she thinks that the geometry is different here. He asks how she knows that it's everywhere, and she shows him that they can't see the lanterns in the drone feed, just their light, and guesses that they're in the extra geometry, the extra 40 degrees and the camera can only pick up what's in the baseline space-time, or whatever. That would explain the statue, which is painful to look at because it's built in a way that they shouldn't be able to see, and it's wrong on the drone footage because they're only seeing what it would look like normally. She tells him not to think about it unless he has to, and the two move on, deeper into the garden. The silence leads them down trails of thought, deeper into their own minds. They were no stranger to unforeseen trouble on missions, such as the time that Kelly accidentally gave a 17th century pickpocket a time machine, but this mission was undoubtedly their worst. The team's roster had changed endlessly over the years, a revolving door of promising faces joining Kelly, Pike, and Blake before leaving months later, frustrated, weary, and resentful. Hanrahan was the latest such addition, transferring over following the untimely end of his former comrades, and the workings of his planned departure were already in motion. The roster was always changed by choice, though, as they had never lost a life in the field, much less two in a handful of hours. It was a rude awakening, one worsened by the place's unnerving insistence on stagnancy, monotony, acting only enough to remind the agents that they weren't welcome, but otherwise leaving them to dwell in silence, with nothing to focus on but themselves. Was this some kind of purgatory, a place constructed by chance and fractured time, serving as a place of penance, a prison to hope, sundering them from the distractions of their regret, forcing them to dwell on the past, the sins of their actions, feel the full weight of their shame? Hanrahan is rescued from his spiraling thoughts by Pike's scream as she stares in horror at her leg. Blake's arm, holding Pike's leg with a white-knuckled death grip, and the upper half of his grizzled face are the only things visible. He looks like he'd been trying to crawl out of the hedge, but the vines had grown back and entombed him, covering his mouth and even venturing up one nostril. His skin is covered in vivid red rashes and blisters wherever the plants touched, and his eyes constantly dart about, settling on Pike and Hanrahan only momentarily, as if struggling to focus on them. When Pike pulls herself free, his hand flails about, trying to grab her again. Pike asks how he got here, but Hanrahan just yells to get him out as he fumbles with his machete. As soon as Pike grabs his arm, he grabs hers in return, and his eyes are generally directed towards her, but still seem unable to lock on, as if looking at something or multiple somethings behind her, but there was nothing there. Hanrahan ruthlessly hacks at the overgrowth, only taking care to avoid hitting Blake and Pike Pike moves anyways, watching the uncharacteristically ferocious swings as she pulls on Blake's arm, hoping that the damage would free him. But it didn't. The vines regrow faster than Hanrahan can slash, multiplying and intertwining like a floral hydra, making the wall stronger instead of weaker. Blake moves less and less with each tug, and even if he wasn't tired, wasn't injured, and wasn't panicking— there was no possibility of Hanrahan humanly overcoming the anomalous rate of growth. He tells Blake that they'll get him out, and urges Pike to pull, but Pike remarks that Blake is seizing and she needs her first aid kit. Hanrahan keeps slashing until she orders him to stop, and he gives one final slash before tossing the machete to the ground. He growls that it's strangling him, but she tells him not to cut the vines, pointing to a vine growing up Blake's nose and saying that the brain is easier to reach through the nose. Hanrahan's face contorts into bewildered disgust, asking how the hell would Blake become part of the plant. She asks in turn how a circle could have 400 degrees in it, or how a disappearing keystone leads to this, or how this whole place exists at all. They don't know. They don't even know if this is a place, or just something pretending to be one. Everything in this place just follows its own rules, so what's stopping a plant from hooking itself up to his brain and making itself irreplaceable? What if this whole maze is his brain now, and he's running around chopping it up like an idiot? She tells him to shut up, do as she tells him, and let her work before they screw up and get him killed. Hanrahan glares at her, but complies, holding off from hacking away at the hedge. Pike asks Blake if he can hear them, worried that trying to rescue him could kill him, but knowing that inaction was equally perilous. The sound of Hanrahan turning catches her attention, and he says that he thought he saw something, but after a pause, he says he's not sure what. Pike notes to herself that his concussion is worsening, but returns her focus to Blake. His continued movement refutes her initial theory that the damage to the vines was the cause of the spasm, either akin to carelessly cutting a brain during surgery, or the plants manifesting their pain through him. Any such damage was long healed, leaving only a light fog of dislodged pollen but Blake's erratic movement continues, with the terrified twitching of his eyes and the constant tapping of fingers against her arm. She then realizes that the tapping isn't constant or uncontrolled, but is intentional. She says that he's hallucinating, not seizing, and he's communicating through Morse code. She tries to tap the code to request an interrupt so he could start over, but he continues tapping away at the same hurried rate. She says that he's tapping the number 4 over and over again, but then notices that there's a difference between the pattern that she feels him tap and what she sees him tap. As she's trying to translate it, Hanrahan yells her name, and she turns to see him gripping his machete, pointing down the corridor at nothing. She then turns back to Blake, but now sees Kelly's face where Blake's had been. She jumps back in terror, colliding with the other hedge wall and dislodging a huge cloud of hallucinogenic descending pollen. She gasps for Hanrahan to put a mask on, coughing as she stumbles towards her backpack. Her trembling hands search for her respirator mask as she feels the pollen crawl down her throat into her lungs where it hatches into billions of ants, hatching within her chest, her arms, her brain. The feeling is unmistakable, as these ants skitter forth to conquer her internals, converting her into a nest, and she screams and begins fervently scratching at her arms and her neck, trying to get at the insects within. The insects she can feel skittering, scraping, moving beneath the surface, through her veins, her arteries, her neck, her eyes. She tries to tell herself that it isn't real, but she feels it, clear as day, as truly as the clothes she is wearing are the nails in new wounds. She continues to tell herself that it was just a hallucination, and the ants weren't real, and she hears a roar, a masculine scream nearby. She then hears a click, the accursed sound from before, the hunting cry of that thing that had taken Kelly. She then thinks about Kelly in the bush, his arm out, crying and weeping and sobbing, trapped and suffering because of her, but she tells herself that that's not real either, as that's Blake. Kelly was gone, taken by the shapeshifter, so this is just an illusion. A voice then asks her, if it is, and she spins around trying to find the voice. She sees faces everywhere in the hedges, screaming and pleading. She sees Kelly, Hanrahan, Blake, Krevin, Reinders, Zank, everyone in the edges, all watching her, and being crushed as the hedges move, writhing like snakes. She then sees herself within the hedges, and asks herself what is real here, and if real is real. Something then collides with her, knocking her face first into her face. She realizes it's the shapeshifter, and she gets back up, screaming, and begins to run. She tells herself to run counterclockwise, but she doesn't know which way that is, or where she's going. Her feet squelch aflame as she runs across the charnel space, The reek of blood and dominion fill her nose, scratching at her arms, scraping open wounds as lifeless birds twitter peacefully beneath the blinding, rotten sky. She matches the horrified screaming with her terrified own as she rebounds off the prison wall mindlessly turning right and fleeing from the faceless, deformed half-people around, pressing in with their blackened hooks, blackened chains, and blackened hands. She grabs at the muzzle on her face, pulling at the burning steel, trying desperately to get it off before the vines grow up her nose, into her eyes, stifle her, suffocate her, at the command of their master— She howls in agonizing pain as her mother and her father, both in one, twist and deform into a chaotic, ever-shifting horror, bringing its tendril down, the weapon finding catch in her hand. She pulls the weapon from her progenitor, the all-encompassing darkness around her greedily consuming both it and the crystals spilling from the wound in her gauntlet, Then, in desperation, she pummels the Lovecraftian horror, trying to protect her ever-dwindling presence in the void by reducing its own, striking it again until it too howls in pain. She falls back into a pool, frigid, gnawing at her bones, freezing around her, solidifying before she can get any more than a single finger above the surface. The building around her shatters, releasing her, Revealing the twisted cityscape beyond, neither right nor wrong, but a morbid blend of the two. She runs through the twisted corridor, half mindedly watching as the crumbling walls and pillars around her are restored, the rubble drifting up, returning to its place, rebuilding an ancient, unparalleled glory. She runs across the open space, ignoring the crunching and squeals of the hordes of bugs underfoot swatting off whichever few find their way onto her to nip and bite and plead and wail. She turns left, too late to avoid Kelly, tackling her off of the roof of the tower, twisting and distorting as his finger vines reach behind her eyes, into her mind, his eyes shattering her own from behind his barrel helm. She falls into the darkness, forever. Her vision filled with an endless counterclockwise spiral, twisting down or perhaps up into the infinite, burning like a meteor, a wick, a fuel, burning away the corruption, the insects on her, within her, throughout her, purifying her by fire to charcoal, to ash, the dawning light at the core of the helix rebuilding her, making her anew in a new way, perfect, proper that blinding light from above, behind its head, speaking to her, calling her, bringing her from chaos to order, perfect true order, lifting the darkness around her, sculpting the void into earth, into grass, shaping the howling hateful silence into rustling bliss, peace, growing the world around her, fixing it, building it as it should, to her will, its will, the right will, to guide, to control, to perfect, never failing. The light becomes too bright, too great, and she lifts a hand to block it out, but it simply moves, insistent on disturbing her, stabbing into her eyes, her headache. Pike groans, reaching out and grabbing the light, finding Hanrahan's hand. He asks her if she can hear him, and she tries to answer, but something is on her face, cold and plastic. She realizes it's the respirator mask, and reaches to take it off, grunting at the piercing pain in her hand. She blinks as she looks at it, and realizes that it's bandaged with two missing fingers. Hanrahan takes off her mask, and he apologizes, as she sees the machete, bloodied, laying in the grass behind him. His face is bloodied as well, with a broken nose, black eye, and bleeding lips. They're in a huge circular clearing several kilometers in diameter, with the encircling hedge walls around them evenly interspersed by the narrow corridors, radiating out in every direction except one. Pike points and mentions Kelly, but Hanrahan slumps and says that it's not him, as he isn't there anymore. The view behind them is dominated by a colossal golden wall, with a pair of gigantic, vine-coated boots partially visible behind it on either side. The base of the statue at the heart of the garden. Pike asks how long they've been here, but Hanrahan doesn't know. He realized that he was lying here about fifteen minutes ago, but has no idea how they got here, even though all of their gear is here. Pike asks about Blake and a voice from above them suddenly says, I. What they had thought was a statue was leaning forward over its monolithic golden claymore, head tilted towards them. The eyes are hidden in darkness, somewhere behind the impossible geometry of the barrel helm, but Hanrahan and Pike could feel that they had its full attention. Pike asks if it can hear them, and it says that it can, calling them by name, and causing them to wince. They ask its name, to which it says that it is the king, and Hanrahan nods before bowing, which Pike copies. Hanrahan thanks it for bringing them here, but asks why. The king responds that it saw their attempts to deface its garden, and Hanrahan immediately apologizes. A resounding repeated booming fills the air, as the king is apparently chuckling, and it says that it is not angered, as their futile attempts to defy the order of this place have been amusing and nothing more. Pike asks what this place is, and it says that it's a home, a prison, a triskelion. Pike comes to a realization and picks up the drone tablet, showing it to Hanrahan. She explains that the spiral starts at the arch, coils inward, then back out comes through the arch and then does the same. It's a triskelion, and everything is built around it. Hanrahan removes the first keystone fragment from his pack and says that it's counterclockwise, just like on the fragment, and she was right. This place isn't random, it's linked to the keystone. Pike turns the camera to the north following the connected paths, and the cottage and its firelight come into view. Both agents immediately turn their heads away, and Hanrahan asks where the spiral is in the first area. The king responds that it is there, just concealed. He then asks who this place is a prison for, and the king explains that it's for the interloper, who they have met twice now, and all that follows their designs, to disrupt the way of things and tear them down. The king enforces the order all things should follow, defending and cultivating it here until it can do so itself. That is why it permits their defacement of its work. Pike remembers Kelly and asks the king if they can rescue him. The king shakes its head and says that he belongs to the interloper now. Hanrahan asks about agent Blake as he was here in the garden, but the king says that He is part of this place now, a part of the Order. To release him is to invoke change, which is the domain of the interloper. The king cannot release him because it cannot afford to be corrupted from its duty. Pike tries to argue that he's just one man, but the king responds that its will does not change. They cannot last in this air, and what is done will not be undone. Hanrahan mentions that they are seeking a keystone, or part of one, and the king tells them that each of the three of them holds a fragment of it, and they have the fragment that belonged to the interloper. It also informs them that the interloper no longer pursues them. Hanrahan asks the king if it too has a piece, which it does, and if it would be willing to relinquish it. The king says that it would, for something of equal or greater value, as such is the order of things here. Hanrahan begins digging through his backpack for something, when the king informs him that it wants his life. The two freeze in silence, before Hanrahan tries to argue that a piece of stone isn't worth his life, but the king interrupts him. It says that it has heard all they have said here, and knows of the keystone's importance. His life for her life. He will stay so that she may take it and leave. Pike asks if they can come to another agreement, but the king tells them that its will does not change. They will agree to its terms or they will wait until they reconsider. Pike tries to argue that it can take agent Blake, but the king is adamant and will only accept Hanrahan's life for the fragment. A few moments then pass until Hanrahan turns to Pike and tells her to finish the mission. She turns to him, horrified, exclaiming that he can't seriously be considering this. He says that he's not, as there's nothing to consider. Neither of them can leave without it, and both of them can't stay. He tells her that he's not going to make it anyway, as his head is pounding, he's still seeing things and can't think. She's the only one left that's well enough to get out of here, so it has to be her. He couldn't save Kelly, and couldn't save Blake, but he can at least save her. Pike looks up at the king and tells it to take her instead, but it says no, at which point Hanrahan shouts that he accepts. He feels the change immediately, an immense, dense weight, the likes of which he had never felt before, falls on his mind. He knows instantly that he had just agreed to something that he couldn't break or bend, or abuse, or avoid in any way. Hanrahan knows, completely and incorruptibly, that he can never leave this place without the bidding of his master, the king. Pike stares at him, mortified, with tears welling in her eyes. This is another person she has failed, another life lost, another weight on her conscience, even if unfairly so. Hanrahan tells her to finish the mission, and put the keystone back where it belongs. The king then lifts their right hand from the claymore's pommel, palm up, and kneels down on one knee, snapping and uprooting the dense vines on its boot. It lowers its hand to the ground, tilting it, and the keystone fragment tumbles down, landing on the grassy ground, and rolling along to stop at Hanrahan's feet, intact and undamaged. It wasn't the top fragment, but the right side, and Hanrahan hands it to Pike. The king returns to its original posture and says that she has what she came for. Pike tells it that this isn't the right piece, before pausing and mentioning that the king said there were three of them. The king responds that they hold the fragment she seeks, and points northwest, towards the cottage. Pike tries to ask the king if it would speak to them for her, but it just says that they are expecting her. Hanrahan catches Pike before she collapses and feels a twinge of shame from the fact that he was glad to abandon Pike at this point, knowing that the only place left to go was the cottage to speak with the inhabitant. As much as he tells himself not to, relief continues to well up. He tells her to finish the mission, and that she can do it, because she has to. Pike takes her time preparing for the final leg of her journey, sorting through Hanrahan's backpack with shaky hands. She takes his camera, hoping to complete the recording, and the tracking device, in case the third piece somehow moves again. When she checks, though, the signal is coming from the northwest. She decides that the third inhabitant must have been on the move the entire time, distributing the broken keystone while the agents unknowingly followed. She adds his ammunition to her own, useless since everything around her is invulnerable, but it was at least a hollow comfort. She leaves his food, though, as a final meal to enjoy, if he can, before his existence is erased by the place's undoing. Hanrahan gives her one of his identity tags, and they embrace. Neither can change the inevitable, nor deny the misery to come, but unlike Kelly's passing, they make the parting as positive and complete as they can. The king watches in indifferent silence as the hug concludes, and Pike sets off to the entrance of the main path, with the colossal tower dominating the sky above it. She looks back repeatedly, unwilling to leave Hanrahan behind, but unable to prevent it. She stops again when she reaches the clockwise curve in the path, beyond which the garden's core grove would be obscured from view by the hedge walls. She looks back, seeing Hanrahan's tiny figure at the base of the king's sword, an ant at the mercy of a titan. She sees two other figures as well, Blake and Kelly, she thinks though they are too far to make out clearly. Hallucinations, regardless, so she dons her respirator mask to prevent the pollen from tormenting her with guilt any further. She turns and continues onward and never sees the others again. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Pike later awakes from her second wave of hallucinations. The pollen's effect was potent but drastically delayed. With the second wave which was similar to the first except all of the faces were the kings initiated while the first one was taking effect it had just bided its time before violently seizing control partway through her clockwise travel she sits up in the grass organizing her thoughts as her mind sifts the unreal from the real wincing as she puts weight on her wounded hand she's in the northeast archway almost halfway through Behind her, the garden with its hedge walls, flowers, and king, while ahead of her the grass abruptly stops, replaced by faultless, vermilion-brown stone. Beyond the threshold, beyond the archway, sits looming, impenetrable darkness, and within it, them. Pike's heart begins to race, and she looks away, back towards the garden. She doesn't want to continue. She wants to go back both literally and metaphorically, she wants everything to go back to the way it had been, back before the mission had been an idea. Kelly was an infuriating nuisance, but at least he was alive. At least they all were, instead of names and regret-filled memories of ill-deserved fates. Thus begot the literal desire to backtrack to the king, demand Hanrahan and Blake's freedom, forcing it if necessary, and then continuing on to the southeastern suburb, find the interloper and kill it, torment it in revenge, and then either rescue Kelly or at least confirm his end before going northward. But it was only a pipe dream, as what could she possibly hope to accomplish with what she had? She had nothing that was of any value, influence, or consequence in this place, and the king and the interloper were beyond harming. She couldn't even damage the landscape to any meaningful extent. She slumps, as the only meaningful thing they had accomplished after hours of wandering and turmoil was obtaining two pieces of the keystone. Three lives for two pieces of rock, and what felt like a lifetime's worth of misery and regret. She recalls Hanrahan's words to her of finishing the mission, and thinks about her two options as she eats some food. One, she could suffocate to death, as the excess carbon dioxide in the barely breathable air was taking its toll, poisoning her blood. She had predicted that it would take hours before they outright lost the ability to breathe, but between the broken clocks, adrenaline-blurred memories, and timeless hallucinations, She had no idea how long ago that had been. Two, she could finish the mission, follow Hanrahan's last command and do the very thing they were here to do. Press on into the plane, find the third inhabitant, take their fragment by whatever means, and then leave using the complete keystone. This would restore the timeline, erase this place, kill Hanrahan, Kelly, and Blake, but save billions. Pike turns back to the plane, as she wants to take the third option, to simply leave despite the impossibility of it. Take her chances on a jump with a broken watch, escape the near future and past and avoid confronting either. She tries to justify it, endlessly stretching probabilities and omitting the facts that refuted it, but inevitably it was too risky. The probable outcome was landing outside of time two pieces of the keystone in hand, which would be irretrievable, like her. The paradox would be permanent, Kelly, Hanrahan, and Blake trapped here forever, with no prospect of release or escape. It wasn't a choice, as there was only one option, to finish the mission. She crosses the threshold, stepping onto the plane. Pike turns her mind to prediction and strategy to avoid undermining her mustard courage. She knows that she has to travel counterclockwise relative to the cottage, even if the spiral is unseen, and to expect some strange manipulation of space on par with wormholes and impossibly round circles. She thinks about the monotonous, duplicated suburb stalked by the malicious, face-changing interloper and the organized, self-repairing garden ruled over by the obstinate, monumental king. Chaos and order, embodiments conjured up by a fractured world, locked in another archetypical conflict for supremacy. But why three, then? What did the yet unnamed third embody? Balance? She stops at the edge of the archway with the cottage hidden in the darkness, the firelight extinguished. Tyke uses her flashlight to search the nearby ground for any clues for the unseen spiraling main route. She knows that she doesn't need to find it, as the agents had gone straight for the west arch when they arrived and encountered no trouble for doing so, but the fact that it was hidden perturbed her. Both the suburbia and the garden were well lit, displaying the pattern to the sky, and if the plane embodied balance, a blend of chaos and order, Why did it lack what others had? Why was its part of the Triskelion not plain to see? Finding no clues, she marches northward into the darkness before her shouting mind could dissuade her. She wonders if there's a link between the denizens and the areas. Three of each implied so, but reflection disagreed, as the garden matched the king, a product of its orderly will but the interloper's suburbia was just as ordered and predictable. It was not something befitting a chaos deity, which surely would have sculpted it into a cacophonous, shifting mess. Rather the suburbs seemed better aligned to balance, the organized predictable repetition representing order, the unexpected wormholes and intrusion of the interloper resembling chaos which would leave the plane and its inhabitant as true chaos. But no, that made less sense, because if the third was chaos, the kings hated antithesis, why would the two be on friendly terms? The third had passed through the garden, spoken with the king, saying Pike was expected, and even given them a gift, a third of the keystone. Nonsensical behavior between mortal enemies, and furthermore implied that the king hated balance more than pure chaos. Her thoughts wander elsewhere pushed in dark directions by her growing yet uncertain proximity to the cottage. Several times her courage completely evaporates, forcing her to stop, especially when her flashlight begins to flicker, prompting the idea of turning back to retrieve Hanrahan's. But she pushes herself onward every time, though the exertion of will needed grew significantly with each. Every so often she checks the drone's view using its low-light mode to spot the vaguely discernible cottage at the core and estimate if it was time to veer left yet or not. Undershooting would make her go clockwise and incur a penalty, while overshooting would waste time. When she approaches it from the north, the cottage's silhouette alludes to its crude, medieval style, before her dwindling flashlight reveals the misshapen, vermilion-brown stones making up its walls, held together by dull yellow mortar. There are two floors, topped with a thatched roof, but neither had any openings on that side. The comically tall chimney protrudes from the west wall and matches the height of the apartment tower and the king. Pike moves counterclockwise to the building's southern face, which features four shuttered windows, two on the upper floor, both closed, and two open on the bottom, with a single arched doorway between them. It is the only door in the entire combined region that works, evidenced by its sitting open, a foreboding invitation to enter. She goes in, almost screaming when the dark interior of the cottage is suddenly lit up by a blinding light from outside. The vermilion brown stone outside is glowing but not all of it, only portions. A wide stretch went directly south toward the central tower, but curved right a distance away. Pike looks at the drone's view, seeing a giant glowing spiral filling the otherwise black plain. The glow vanishes, leaving Pike's dying flashlight as her only source of light. With trembling hands and unsteady legs, she surveys the interior. A rough wooden staircase dominates the north wall, leading upstairs, while the west wall is taken up by the fireplace, where a few red and yellow embers still glow among the black charcoal and white ash. There's a wooden table in front of her, with four handmade chairs around it, the nearest askew, as if offered to her. The rest of the room is bare. But Pike searches the surroundings again, still trying to identify the elusive theme so she could twist it to her advantage. She then hears a creaking sound from above her, and follows it with her dimming, dwindling light. Slow, protracted footfalls towards the staircase as her light goes out. She hears the first stair creak, then the second and the third at the same patient pace, then a faint, soft footfall on stone, followed by a pause, and then a voice speaks, greeting her, and saying that they have been expecting her. Pike says nothing, and though she can't see it in the darkness, she closes her eyes nonetheless. The entity tells her that she has been walking for a long time now, and bids her to take a seat. She does as instructed her trembling, bloodied hand finding the offered seat and sitting without adjusting it. The two share another moment of silence, and the entity says that she has questions, and it will answer hers if she answers its. Pike nods, and the entity tells her to ask her first question. Pike thinks to herself in silence, and when the words finally come out, they are strained and croaky. She asks it, what it is. The entity replies that it is the end, the mirage of the destination and the goal. Pike furrows her brow slightly, still confused, and opens her mouth to speak again, but the entity stops her. It says that she is an agent, like Agent Hanrahan, Kelly, and Blake, and asks what they are agents of. There's another short silence as Pike decides her phrasing, before responding that they are of the chronology department and they manage history. The entity replies that they keep it in order and correct it when things change. Pike pauses again as she doesn't know the entity's alignment and doesn't want to risk alienating it. Instead, she asks if the entity will give her the third piece of the keystone. It replies that, for a price. It will, and asks her to confirm that she keeps history in order. After a protracted silence, the entity says that it answered her question honestly, so now she must answer its. The silence drags on for a little longer before Pike replies that yes, they keep it in the order it should be in, and fix it when it goes wrong. Another silence falls, until the entity says that she may ask her next question, but she replies that it may go again. The entity asks what order history should be in, to which she responds the way it goes unaltered, without things being changed by outsiders. She in turn asks it what it is the end of, and what is going on here. The entity laughs as Pike shrinks in her seat, and replies that It is the end of their work, the end of their intervention, of fixing what is wrong and keeping it in the order it should be in. She was told this place is a prison, and that is true, as they have been waiting here, pushing against the stone walls around them, waiting to be free again. Now the keystone has come loose, and without it the whole wall collapses. They are free again. Another protracted silence ensues, each of them considering their options and questions very, very carefully. The entity asks her if the chronology department watches over all history, always. She doesn't answer, instead saying that she doesn't want to ask any more questions. The entity however responds that she already did, as she asked two. too. When Pike denies this, the entity repeats her last two questions the end of what, and what is going on here, but it does it in exactly her voice. Pike jumps to her feet in horror and says that the entity is the interloper. The entity replies that it is and it isn't. It is the end, they are the interloper, they are both one and the same, but it is not the interloper, and they are not the end. Pike asks what and says that that doesn't make sense to which the entity replies that that is another question, so now she owes them two. It will give her what she asks, but then she must give something of equal or greater value. The entity's voice is replaced with the king's, and Pike stumbles backward over her chair. It continues, saying that they are a trinity, three but one. Different methods, different bodies, in different places, but one mind, one soul, one code. Order, the order all things should obey, that they obey unerringly, warped as they are to be in this chaos-endowed existence. What is true for one is true for all, and there is no difference between them. The three are designed to disrupt the way of things, to tear them down, to enact change, to change them from chaos to order, tearing her weak facade of order apart so that the king can rebuild it into true order, and protect it from the corrupting chaos that permeates everything without them. And when they are done, there will be no more room for change, or for chaos. There will be no room for creatures born of it, such as her and her kind. For her there will be nothing but darkness and silence. The entity revels in the following silence, as finally they had their voice again, and finally creation could hear their call, their demand, their declaration. It tells her that she still owes them answers, and asks again if the chronology department watches over all history always. She whispers no, and says that most of the multiverse is outside of their attention, either managed by someone else, or nobody at all. None of them can keep track of it all. The entity then asks how do you use the keystone effectively, and she explains that you hold it against the keystone of a door, think of a destination, anywhere with ordinary space at any time, open the door and it will lead there. The entity proceeds to take its fragment of the keystone and moves to the door of the cottage, holding it against the peak of the arch before opening the door. It then turns back to Pike, telling her that nothing happened, and asks why it didn't work. Pike hesitates before hope returns to her face, and she says that maybe it needs all the pieces together, or maybe it doesn't work at all anymore. The entity demands that she give it her pieces, and after a pause, Pike replies that there needs to be an equivalent exchange of equal or greater value. The entity scoffs and closes the door, telling her that it presumes she wants a reversal of the previous two exchanges, Agent Kelly and Hanrahan, for the two pieces of the stone. Pike pauses, conflicted at whether to release the entity in order to regain the others, and after a moment she sits up and retrieves her two fragments. She says that she doesn't want to trade her pieces. The entity then asks what her proposal is, and Pike pauses again, recognizing the importance of her phrasing here. She remarks that the entity mentioned two exchanges, but she only remembers one, when Hanrahan traded himself for the second fragment. She realizes that it's referring to Kelly, and that it traded the first fragment of the keystone for his life, even though they never agreed to that. The entity replies that they took the piece, and that's agreement enough. Even if they didn't understand the terms. Besides, if she believes the exchange was invalid, then she should return the fragment to its rightful owner, and they will correct the error. She pulls the pieces close, and says no, so the entity replies that she accepts the interloper's exchange matching the terms of the king, and now she should present her proposal. Pike carefully considers her options, believing that she has a thin opportunity to succeed here, but has to ensure that she understands the rules fully. She asks about Blake and what happened with him. The entity pauses and says that it doesn't see the relevance. Pike says that it doesn't matter, as she has answered three of its questions since it tried to use the fragment, so by its own rules it owes her three honest answers. Or would it break its own rules just because it finds it inconvenient? After a silence, the entity growls and says that it will not violate their order, even when unfavorable. Blake was an assurance, as he was the currency for an exchange of assurances. They are three, and their group was four, so in exchanging him the team gained assurance of fair treatment. Pike has one question left now and her mind races over everything she knows, trying to determine the last question, to ensure that it gives her all the knowledge she needs to survive. The idea blooms into understanding, and the hope in her face changes to horror. She says that it would give up its peace for a price, and every time it has before, it wanted a life in return. Kelly for the interlopers, Hanrahan for the kings, and her for its peace. The entity replies that their terms and their will do not change. She is correct, that she will be given the same treatment as Kelly and Hanrahan, and to do otherwise would be unfair. She shakes her head, saying that this isn't fair, as there's no point in her giving it up, and the entity replies that her actions would deny them their freedom, so it's fair for them to deny her her freedom in turn. She begins to ask why would she say yes to this, but cuts herself off, trying to say that she didn't ask anything. The entity however replies that there is a grace period she could use. Pike tells it to explain, but it says nothing, so she phrases it as a question instead. The entity replies that Kelly and Hanrahan were permitted to transfer their possessions to a successor, and if they possessed an equal opportunity, they would be permitted to use the keystone during her three minute grace period, only if they are able to match her actions to access elsewhere by equal means. Pike gets up, setting her two fragments on the table and taking off her watch. She turns away to check the tachyon readings, showing it to be the same garbled nonsense, so it would likely still eject her out of time if she used it. But the keystone would be accurate. So she could open a gateway to the chronology department, and send the keystone through. Then the department could break the paradox, fix the timeline, and imprison the entities again. Pike says that they can only send objects through, as that's equal opportunity. She only gets to use the keystone to send two objects through, nothing else, and it only gets to use her watch to send two objects, nothing else. If it disagrees, she'll just take her luck with the watch. After a pause, the entity agrees, if she accepts to give them her life in exchange for its fragment of the keystone and the three-minute grace period. Pike pauses for a long time, willing herself to continue with the undesirable, painful decision while scouring for any hope of a preferable escape. There was none, so she accepts. A quiet, interrupted only by the crackles of the growing flames, hangs in the air for a few moments before the entity tells her to sit. She obeys, returning to her seat and blindly offering the watch in the entity's direction, eyes closed as the firelight grew. The entity sits across from her, taking the watch and gently putting the fragment in her hand. Her fingers run over its surface, feeling the engraved third spiral, the incomplete circle of glyphs, the tracking device glued to the top. She lowers the piece onto the table, blindly orienting the three pieces, then brings them together along their jagged seams. She runs her hands over the united fragments, unwilling to open her eyes. Her fingers meet at the center of the keystone, in the heart of the engraved triskelion, right where the three pieces should have met. The entity asks her if she really thought she could outsmart them. She replies that it said this was the last piece, to which the entity says that it told her it was the third piece, and never said that there were only three. She gets up and says that the king told her that each of them has a fragment, and that there's only three of you. The entity replies, however, that when she asked, each of the three of them did have a fragment, as the interloper had another. Even otherwise, she never asked if they held them all. Pike tells it to give her the fourth piece, at which it laughs and says no. She tells it that she can't use the keystone without it, so it has to give it to her, as that's the deal. The entity responds that the deal was that she would be allowed to send two objects using it, but there was no assurance that she could actually do so. Pike says it's equal opportunity, so it can't use the watch if she doesn't get to use the keystone. The entity, however, says exactly, and crushes the watch. It never wanted to use the watch, but only wanted to ensure that she could not. Pike despondently says that this isn't fair, as there's only three of them, so why would they split it four ways? The entity replies that there are four shapes in a triskelion, Three shapes, and the Triskelion itself, a shape in its own right. Three spirals, three areas, three members the suburbia in the southwest, the garden in the southeast, the plain in the north, and the counterclockwise tower in the center of everything. It tells her that she was given the assurance of fair treatment, that they would exchange with her, not simply take, but in turn. They took the assurance of victory. No matter how many came, only three of the team would wander to ensure that they would not lose their freedom again. The door then opens, and the interloper and the king step in, closing it behind them. They take the rest of the fragments, and the interloper holds the keystone against the doorway's peak, this time genuinely imagining a destination somewhere beyond the chronology department's reach. Though sundered and separate, never to regain the combined form that locked them away, the fragments are reunited within the shared grasp, each behaving as the whole, and the keystone heeded their will. The king opens the door, and sunlight shines in. Pike whispers another question. Why? And the interloper tells her that they did it to learn. Thanks to her, they leave with knowledge, knowledge of their foes outside, the chronology department, though they do not know that the entities exist, knowledge that they can be avoided, and that there are others, too. She would not have told them this willingly. The king steps to the doorway and tells her to open her eyes, but she shakes her head. It says that she is going to die. Her actions are of no consequence, and it is simply affording her an opportunity to see the end. Another long silence ensues as tears roll down Pike's face, and she turns her head aside and opens her eyes to see the firelit staircase. She tries to find a loophole, a workaround, an escape. She notices the end's shadow cast across the table and in a panic closes her eyes tight again. The end tells her to look at it, but she shakes her head again. Slowly, unwillingly, however, she turns her head back to face it, as nothing can defy them, and she opens her eyes. So, in the end, the team was pretty much doomed from the start, as the entities had planned everything out, not to mention they knew all the rules from the get-go. It's a fairly grim ending, as there's really no hope for Pike left, and the entities now get to go beyond where the chronology department can reach them, which can't be a good thing. I often like to describe the horror genre as one where the primary goal of the piece of media is to invoke horror in the consumer. After all, that's the name of the genre, and what separates it from the often similar, but different, thriller genre. I also like to say that there's a certain subgenre of horror that I call despair, as that's the primary emotion that the media hopes to invoke in the consumer. These pieces of fiction are generally much sadder in the end than most horror pieces, as characters are left with no hope of ever getting out of the situation. Perhaps the chronology department will come up with some way to rescue Pike and Hanrahan, but in stories filled with despair, much of the point is that there's really no hope left.